Welcome to Guru Live at BAFTA's Piccadilly headquarters. I'm Rihanna Dillon. We have a whole day talking about television and to kick us off, with me, we have Kenton Allen delivering the keynote. Kenton is the chief executive of Big Talk Productions and he's been behind comedies such as Friday Night Dinner, The Royal Family and Him and Her. Kenton, what are you here to talk about? I'm honoured to have been asked to give the BAFTA Guru Live television keynote. So I'm being interviewed by Andrew Collins about how I got into television and how I've been getting away with it for the last 32 years. 32 years? My God, I'm only 27. (laughs) I'm 27, you can't get away with that. Yes, points taken, moving on. <laughs> um, what is like the crux of the message that you're hoping to get across to our listeners? I think it's just a sharing experience and just, you know, uh, getting on is 5% hard work, 95% luck, but you make your own luck. Be open to people, approach people, ask some questions, don't irritate them, but don't be shy because we're all, when we turn up to these events, we're here because we want to share our knowledge and experience and we're always on the lookout for the next resident genius so my advice is don't be shy I guess. Thank you very much Kenton. Uh, your host for this talk is Andrew Collins and this recording definitely will contain swears. Oh yes it will yes but he's from the Midlands so what, what, what can you expect? <laughs> Let's go back Kenton to okay. the beginning because um, you said to me the other day actually on the phone when we were talking about this session that the thing you most wanted to be when you were young was Tony Visconti, no, I did. the famous music producer. I wanted to be a record producer. Um, so, that, so that didn't happen. No, and clearly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so I, um, when I was 18 and I didn't go to university. Right. I decided that, well, I didn't decide, they decided <laughs> that um, that wasn't an option. Um, um, but I had a saxophone teacher who said, if you want to be a record producer, you can do one of three things. You can go to London and, and go around all the recording studios that used to exist, knock on the door and say, can I have a job, please? Which I did, and they said, no, bugger off. Um, or you can try and get into Surrey University to do a thing called a Tonmeister course, which you have to be incredibly clever to get on, which I wasn't um, and didn't. Uh, and the third thing was apply to the BBC, because they will train you, which they still will to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, so I applied to the BBC. I lived in, I grew up in Birmingham, uh, and BBC in the Midlands. I applied, and at 18, uh, they foolishly took me on and paid me £4,774 a year to be a trainee studio manager. Which must have been, at the time, like living the dream, surely? It was living the dream, Andrew. It was Monday, it was um, uh, doing sound effects on the arches. So Eddie Grundy would come in, and I'd go, I'd chink some glasses <laughs> and, and go two bites of shires and I'd clink the glasses. Or wrap yourself in quarter inch tape to play on Laura's dead body, which is my coup de gras on the arches. Uh, and Tuesday you'd do a radio one session and Wednesday you'd be in the boom up on Howard's Way and Thursday you'd be putting radio mics on people in the helmet at one. And Friday you'd be doing a doctor documentary. This is quarter inch tape editing for young people. Where yeah. you'd be in a room with a producer who would go, what happens if we put that bit there and that bit there and that bit there? So that for a bit, and that uh, producer was also the head of network radio, said, oh, you're quite good at moving things around editorially. Uh, You should be a producer and sent me to Radio Nottingham, where I was a rubbish um, drive time presenter for about a week, (laughs) Um, but also a producer. And through that, I met various people that said, apply for this, apply for that. So I I went through the BBC, and eventually ended up at Radio 4, where I worked on the show called Loose Ends, where I met writers who wrote Ned Sherin's opening monologue. Um, and I met comics and people that wrote for a living. Um, and then I, is this the story? Yeah. Right, yeah and then I went to um, Radio 1, uh, because Radio 1 wanted to improve its speech output at that point. And I went to Radio 1 and worked on things like, um, Steve Wright in the afternoon, where I played Llama Man, half man, half radioactive llama. Um, <laughs> but just sort of got more work with, in a small environment, radio with writers and people trying to be funny. And uh, I wrote to Jonathan Ross, who at the time had just started doing his show on Channel 4, and said, oh, you all good, you should do a radio show. And we did a 13-week live show at Ronnie Scott's called Jonathan Ross Live from Ronnie Scott's. Danny Baker wrote the script. Um, and it just all sort of came from there, and then Jonathan said, you're not an idiot, clearly. <laughs> I didn't correct him of that, and he offered me a job in television. So I left Radio for Television after four years. So the, the kind of, the first big turning point, really, is from um, 
well, from sound to producing after a week of presenting. I think that, yeah, I think it's just getting in. Yeah. Even though you might want to do one thing, getting in somewhere where you can just soak it all up. So the great thing about being a trainee studio manager was I just got to get in there and see how it all worked and work out which bits I liked. And thankfully, there were people who were smart and encouraging, was looking at what I was good at and encouraged me in the right direction. But well, you, getting in is the tricky bit, obviously, and that's the, why you're all here. And you, the thing is, you were, you were in an area of work that you really wanted to be in, even if you weren't exactly sure where it was going to take you. you know, well, I still you, really wanted to be Tony Visconti, so I really, that, that my, dream, my dream was to work at Radio 1. Right. There could not be a better job in the world for a young man in his early 20s to be in London with the world's record companies coming to you every day and showing you all their stuff and you going, oh, I'd like that one, that one, and that one to play, to give to Simon Bates, for God's sake, mm. um, to put on the radio. Um, and what I didn't know when I wanted to be t Tony Visconti was that there was this other world. Well, I did know, come on to that. What I didn't, hadn't thought about was actually not being a record producer, but being a producer of um, storytelling and, and content. Um, Although I had always been a huge fan of comedy, and my dad had the Goon Show scripts, books and books and books of the Goon Show scripts, which I used to read uh, religiously as a child. So somewhere inside me was a understanding or a love of scripts and comedy and all of that. Um, but the things only really coalesced and came together through the good grace of the BBC, allowing me to ask about and, and do things. Well, as you say, you know, the BBC still trains. They do. Yeah, as a, as a remit to do that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and so it should, for, it should for, do more training, frankly, but yes. it, it does have a, a strong training remit. I know that the current director general, Tony Hall, wants to do more training, and so you know, apply to the BBC if you can get through the doors of the BBC. It's a fantastic institution for yeah. for, uh, for training you and giving you opportunities to try things out and fail and make mistakes and not be shouted at. And it probably less media-style courses at university when you didn't go to university than there are now. I, think, I don't think there were any. Yeah. There was probably film studies courses. Well, I, I, when I started work in a music paper at the NME, that was my first job, um, there were two people in the NME who had been on a media course, yeah. which was, must have been relatively yeah, yeah. new at that time. That was in the I'd 80s. I'd love to go on a media course. Uh, and now there are media courses everywhere yeah, yeah. you go. So yeah. um, who's things, on a media things course are geared here? up. Who's actually on it or done one? H hands up anyone who's on or wants to do a media course. Like it's, a third of people. Maybe. And, and you know, there's loads of opportunities that way. But I, I guess the big difference is that there are a lot more opportunities for pinpointing the media, whether it's TV or any other part of it, early on, and following that through as a potentially realistic career choice, which there wouldn't have been when you didn't go to university and when I went to art school. Yeah. Um, they're available, but then that equally means loads more opportunities. Also, you have to fight harder but, yeah. to, to get through the scrum of other people doing but it. But also, there weren't, because it sounds kind of Elysian, just applies to the BBC, but there weren't 600 independent production companies all looking for bright, young, talented people. There was the BBC and ITV, and uh, that was it. Yeah. Independent production companies didn't exist then. So now there's much more opportunity, obviously, in all, in all areas. Although there's much more competition, I would imagine. And you worked then for Channel X, which was Jonathan Ross's production company. Yeah, I left when I went to Channel X, which was Jonathan's fledgling production company that was making his TV shows. And they, Jonathan discovered Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer um, in a pub in Deptford. Um, so they were making the Vic Reeves big night out. So suddenly you're in a world where there were lots of really young, smart, clever people doing things with scripts and talk shows and trying to be funny. And Jonathan introduced me to the world of David Letterman and Ernie Kovac, who was a brilliant pioneer of the comedy talk show. And Danny Baker was running around being bonkers and brilliant and lots of writers. So it just, you were suddenly in this world of, of, um, of people that like you that were trying to do things that you could help, I guess, as a producer. It was like uh, uh, Jonathan Ross's production company at that time was like a kind of parody of what you might expect it to be like. You'd walk in and you would see Roland Riveron sitting around and Danny right. Baker, and yeah. Jonathan Ross would actually be there behind yeah. a desk. It's not like he was some kind of remote figurehead there. Yeah. Um, so do you think that that model uh, is one that's basically become the standard model for, for especially comedy production companies, but TV production companies? That sort of 
the person who runs it, their personality is kind of stamped on it. I think for in some of them, yes. I mean, you know, Steve Coogan, Baby Cow. Yeah. It's a pretty, pretty impressive body of work, and that was being driven by Steve and Henry's passion. They don't all have to be led by talented writer performers, um, but there's been a tradition of them. Uh, Talk Back, which was Griff Rees-Jones and Mel Smith and Peter Fincham, yeah. you know, a non-performing non kind of producer behind two very talented um, multi-hyphenates, as the Americans would call them. Yeah. Um, so yes, but not necessarily no. I mean, at Big Talk, we have Simon Pegg, Edgar Wright, Nick Frost, all part of the business were there before me, with, not with my partner, Naira. Yeah. Um, and the business has grown with them, but they go off and do lots of other things that, they, that don't necessarily involve us. So yes and no, whatever the question was. Well, it, what, I mean, what we get from, from you know, reading your CV is that you've spent a certain amount of time at, well, at the BBC, yes. at Granada, yes. uh, in the independent production yes. company sector, which, yes. uh, which you're now uh, reigning over. Um, and so you, and you've worked in radio, and you've worked in TV, you've worked in comedy, you've moved from comedy into drama, and comedy drama of late with, with Big Talk. So you have kind of done everything along the way. What do you do as a CEO of Big Talk? I mean, I know, I know your day is filled with lots of different things. It's not sitting behind an office and... No. Um, I think what you really do is you try and find great people um, to who need help or that can help you, um, and then you put them together and try and make sure that, it, that they are allowed to do their best work. It's sort of what you do. There's some other stuff you do, which is the running of the business, mm. but it's really, as the chief executive, you are the person who is taking the responsibility for everything that the company does, ultimately, with a fantastic team of people around you and people that whom without you wouldn't be able to do your job, but you're sort of trying to spot talent or attract talent um, of all shapes and sizes on camera and off camera and give them an environment in which they can do their best work. And so as a producer, which is what you've mostly done yeah. up to that point, it's, you're an enabler. You, you, you make an environment by doing the things that your writer doesn't want to be doing and your cast don't want to be doing yeah. and your director doesn't want to be doing. You do everything else so that they can get on with their jobs. That's kind of what a producer is. Would you agree with that? It's kind of that, yeah. But it's also, you, don't, you have a creative bone in your body as well, which you have to, you, you know, you, are, you apply when, you're, when it's the right time. Okay. There's a great, there's a great old, um, it's the right time to tell this story. There's a great old journalist saying, which is, um, the journalist was fed up getting phoned up by uh, commissioning editors saying, don't you think it's terrible about uh, Ken Livingston? Or don't you think it's terrible about uh, what's happening in, in Russia with Putin? Or don't you, think it's, don't you think we should all be wearing yellow this season? And her response became, have you got a pencil? Uh, and the person would say, yes, I've got a pencil. And she would say, I don't think that, but if you do, why don't you write it? Right. So, and I think that, to me, sort of sums up what a producer does, which is it's not my idea. It could be a spark of an idea. I might go, Andrew, have you ever thought about doing a show about a BAFTA lecture that goes terribly wrong? Mm. And, and, and <laughs> what happens after that? But it's not my job to write it. It's my job to go, who would be good for that spark of an idea? And it's their job to do it. And that's sort of true of producing. You're just trying to find the best people to do all of those jobs. Often people ask you, how do you make the leap from um, working in non-scripted television or working in entertainment or just not being in the genre, a bit early for that word, isn't it, right. Sunday? Not being in, being, in a, being in television, but not being in the bit you want to be in. So I was in, uh, I was working in Manchester for Granada Television, um, producing what probably will be seen as a classic of its genre uh, in years to come, but a game show called The Shane Ritchie Experience, um, which involved people competing to win their weddings. Um, uh, anyway. <laughs> I think it's online, have a look, it's, uh, as I say, ahead of its time. Anyway, it's doing that, and up there, um, um, the end game was called Stag and Hens, and it involved the bride-to-be sitting on a massive hen, firing eggs out of its arse, <laughs> and then the groom-to-be dressed as a stag with a big net of antlers on his head, catching the eggs. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I was doing that, but I, the point of the story is about just um, 
about people and, and, and meeting people and then and developing relationships with people and seeing where that leads. So I was in Manchester and um, Caroline Hearn and Craig Cash, Henry Normal, um, were making the royal family the first series. I did the, the show happened without me, nothing to do with its invention or creation. I produced the second and third series. Um, so I can't take any credit for its originality. All I can take credit for is not fucking it up on series two and three. Um, but as a result of just being around in the in the entertainment department and getting the train back to and uh, to back to and from London, Manchester, and bumping into them and getting to know them, I just developed a relationship with them um, as a kind of just you know a chap around the office. Um, I didn't think anything of it, of it. And then they asked me to produce a Mrs. Merton Christmas special, which I did. And then off the back of that, they and Andy Harris, who was who was their sort of executive producer and my boss said, would you fancy producing the royal family? So the reason for showing it is not because I had anything to do with how brilliant it is, but it's just about just being, talking to people all the time, being enthusiastic, being interested in what they'd done. So I'd seen the first series and I used to go to the Mrs. Merton studios just as a, as a kind of hunter and watch them and was a fan of what they were doing. So it's just an example of just to be open to people and talk to them and show interest in what they're doing. And, and often, they, often people don't tell people that they like the things that they've made. If you engage somebody that you admire, a producer, a writer, in something they've made and tell them why you like it and you're vaguely intelligent about it, you never know where that might lead. So that was the point of the clip, yeah. I guess. No, I mean, also, it's really funny. It is brilliantly funny, yes. And, and, but in order for it to be made at all, it was somebody enabling creative people to do what they wanted to do, yes. which was that, which was yeah, yeah, quite yeah. unusual and might have not sounded like a very sexy ratings winner on paper. No, the great, the great story about the royal family um, is that the BBC wanted Caroline Hearn to do another series of Mrs. Merton, and she um, said, I will do, but you have to let me shoot um, this show called The Royal Family and gave them the script. And um, various people said, this is rubbish. It's, it's just people sitting around watching the television for half an hour, nothing happens, there's no story, it's all set in one room, no thank you. Um, but because they wanted to see with Mrs. Merton because it was a big hit, Carolyn persuaded them to let her shoot a pilot, um, which is buried, I believe, in her mother's garden. Uh, right. They shot a multi-camera pilot with an audience, um, four cameras, and that sort of material shot in front of an audience, people laughing-ish, it was a bit of a disaster. And then because of Caroline and Craig's and Andy Harris's general uh, brilliance, uh, they managed to persuade the BBC to let them do it again. And they went film, shot on 16 mil back in the day, which was an extraordinary thing to do, documentary style, and the rest is history. But it is the bloody-mindedness of Caroline saying, I won't do this show unless you let me do this show. We can't do that because we're not um, that powerful or clever. <laughs> but that's, a, that's how that show came about. So, I mean, at the end of the day, Obviously, you need your creative person or persons, writers with the it's idea. To meet a genius. Yes, that's all you have to do. <laughs> meet a genius, but but and get behind them. You know this thing you said about you tell people why you like something yeah. and that you like something. Yeah, it's unbelievable in television. I find, but also in journalism as well, how often you have to take a lack of response as uh, a thumbs up. Because somebody yeah. won't tell you something's good, they'll just not get back in touch with you, and you'll have to assume that that means it's not rubbish, or that it doesn't yeah. need writing again or doing again. Yeah. There is a, a, and I think it's a lot to do with the huge amount of layers of people that yeah. there still are at the BBC, particularly the BBC, where just getting contact with somebody yeah. who then tells you something, and you can join. Well, if you see a, if you see a show that you like, that you like, then write to the producer. If you like catastrophe, write to. Um, uh, what's his name? <laughs> it's too early. Write to the producer. The names are on the ends of the show. It's not difficult. Yeah. Write to them and tell them, I really like that show. Can I come have a cup of tea? This is why. Can I come have a cup of tea? It's go. unusual that people will say no to you if you've just been incredibly nice about something they've worked incredibly hard on. Mm. And, you've, and you've been vaguely intelligent in the, in the, don't write a book, but write a couple of lines about why you like it and why you're interested in narrative comedy, or why you're interested in documentary, or why you're interested in whatever it is, any chance of a cup of tea. And also, don't, you don't have to think inside, well, this is what a sitcom is like. 
which is definitely what happened with the royal family. A sitcom should be like this, that the pilot didn't work, we'll do it like this instead, that worked. Um, you don't have to think inside the box, and that is a really dull phrase, but I really, you know, in television, don't be sort of frightened by what something ought to be like. No. And in fact, if it's the exact opposite, that's probably just as well. Um, things go in waves, though. Royal Family was made by Granada Television in Manchester, although it was shot down here in uh, Ealing Studios. And after two series of that, I left Granada. I was asked by a very, very uh, brilliant woman called Elizabeth Murdoch, who you might have heard of, who started a production company called Shine, that you might have heard of, and she asked me to go there and be um, one of the founding um, partners in it. So I went and did that. Um, for two or three years in 2006, I think. No, can't remember. Sound of the century, God. <laughs> um, and having done that for two or three years, uh, I got a call from the BBC to say, would you be interested in coming and work in the comedy department? And I'd worked in radio, never worked at BBC comedy in television, which to me was the pinnacle of, and I still think is the pinnacle of, of um, of comedy globally. There is no better place, I don't think. Uh, and it, to me, it was like the finishing school for, um, uh, for a comedy producer. And also, I'd never worked in a television broadcasting environment, and the BBC is still the best in the, in the world. Um, so I went and did that, and uh, got there, and realized that um, having been in Manchester with Carolina Hurd, and this annoying bloke called Peter Kay kept turning up into the cutting room and giving us his opinions. Um, I realised that we're not going to find the next Caroline Hearn or Peter Kay standing in London in the Groucho Club or Soho House or wherever. Um, and that there wasn't, bizarrely, there wasn't a Manchester-based comedy department in, um, in the BBC. Um, so the advice I was given by a very smart man was, it's always better to apologise and ask permission, which is always a good catchphrase, in the BBC, so I wrote a press release saying that the BBC were opening uh, BBC Comedy North in Manchester and uh, sent it out, and nobody shouted at me, <laughs> and so that's then what we were doing. We had BBC Comedy North in Manchester. We had to go and find some money, but because it was happened and somebody had printed it in the broadcasters, I think we were doing it. As a result of that, we did quite a lot of things, but one of them was uh, met Jeremy Dyson, who was um, wanted to write longer format, um, uh, tell stories over a bigger format than half an hour sitcom. Um, and a brilliant development producer was working with me called Gabby Asher, who'd come from EastEnders, um, who you know, Gabby. Yes. She'd been on EastEnders as a brilliant storyliner, but she wanted to work in comedy, so she'd come to us. And she said, let's put Jeremy Dyson, brilliant co-writer of The League of Gentlemen, with Simon Ashdown, who at the time was the showrunner, on EastEnders, uh, and BBC Three had just started, was doing in interesting and ambitious things. I wanted to do uh, storytelling on a bigger scale, because that was what was beginning to happen in the States, and you could see half-hour sitcom writers wanting to write um, more interesting, complicated narratives. So Funland was born, which I doubt anybody's ever seen. Nope, uh, but which uniquely got nominated for a BAFTA drama serial up against things like Cranford and, uh, and uh, Bleak House from our little unofficial renegade uh, <coughs> Manchester um, department. Obviously some uh, excellent acting talent in there as well. Yeah. And clearly, I would say, on a, and shot on a, not a high budget. Would that be fair to no, say? No, it was shot, yeah. It yeah. was incredibly ambitious and shot on... Um, on a modest budget, mm. but just giving everybody a chance to do something different. And obviously it's got a serialized narrative, so that it's a who's in the gorilla costume. Um, and you, he goes to Blackpool and meets all these, looking for Ambrose Chapel, Sarah Smart's sexually repressed character and goes on a journey of discovery. And uh, it was great, it was great fun to make and great fun to do something more cinematic, which was the, the uh, everybody's kind of motivation for being there. And a comedy drama is, a, is still a tough nut to crack. Yep. Uh, critics always say, well, it's not funny enough to be a comedy and yep. it's not dramatic enough to be a drama. That is, yep. you know, it's easy for them to say that yep. they make television programs. Um, and it's, when, it, when it does work, it really works. Because yep. if, you, you know, if you, Breaking Bad is effectively a yep. comedy drama. You know, it's as dramatic and it's funny at the same time. Yep. And to, to keep it, that blend going for a long time It's difficult tough. because it's about audience expectations. So if you tell somebody... So this is why comedy is the hardest genre. Don't care what anybody else says, it's the hardest genre to get right. 
because it's the only um, art form that says to the audience, you will have a physical reaction to this. It's going to make you laugh. And if you don't make them laugh, they go, oh, that was shit. It's not funny. Why is this? This is not a comedy. And so drama doesn't say this will make you cry or make you f f uh, scared or make you worried or make you anxious. It doesn't promise an emotional experience. Comedy promises that, that kind of primeval emotion, which is to laugh. Um, so often comedy drama, the audience come to it expecting it to be funny. And then when it isn't, um, it's a problem because the comedy should come out of character um, and not out of, of, of situation. So um, often it's a marketing issue, I think. But Breaking Bad was never marketed as a comedy drama. Yeah. It was just a drama. Uh, and most of the best American shows that are really funny are marketed as dramas. They're not, we're not told they're going to be funny and dramatic. It's a, it's a peculiarly British uh, problem. Americans say dramedies because they're American and they're annoying. But, um, <laughs> but it's, so it's, a, it's a more of a perception of marketing thing. So Funland was marketed as a drama series and the, and, the, and the promos were cut around the drama and the storytelling. The fact that the audience happened to find some of the characterizations and situations funny was a, was a bonus. Um, how do we get on to that? Well, and the BAFTA, the BAFTA nomination uh, is an amazing Yeah, yeah, drama, you know, in drama serials. So that was, because it was a closed-end series. It was never, it didn't, we didn't do the second series because the mystery was resolved. We talked about it a bit. We felt like we'd done it. Um, so to get recognised by BAFTA was an extraordinary tribute to, to Jeremy and, uh, and Simon Ashdown and Dervla Walsh, who directed the opening episode, who hadn't done that much by then. She came out of promos, I think. She was mainly a promo director in television, making those on-air promos. Um, so it's a hugely yeah. exciting thing to do. And also just giving you a taste of what, you know, not limiting your ambition and giving you a taste of th other things you can do. Two shows made by Big Talk since you became CEO. Yep. Um, when it kind of it was formed in the mid-90s and Spaced was the calling card. So it was started production. in 1995 by Naira Park, who's yeah. my, uh, my other business partner with Matthew Justice, who's the managing director. Naira was in an attic flat. Um, she'd been a, uh, she'd at the comic strip. Um, um, she started on her own and uh, she knew Edgar Wright uh, and, and worked with Edgar and Edgar, Simon and Nick. Uh, uh, written by Edgar and Simon created Spaced, which is still uh, one of the seminal comedies of all time. The pilot, I still think, is probably the best pilot episode of half-hour comedy you'll ever see. Watch it. It's utterly brilliant and perfect. Uh, and then she made Black Books with uh, Dylan and Bill Bailey. Um, but out of the creative uh, partnership that, um, that was Spaced, she made Shaun of the Den Hot Fuzz, um, which did quite well for all concerned. Um, and when I was at Shine with uh, Liz Murdoch. Um, we tried, I tried to buy Big Talk because I thought they were a fabulous company that hadn't really um, fully blossomed into the huge creative um, powerhouse they could be. But Naira rightly said, bugger off, don't want to do that. Um, so cut to 2008 and I'm leaving the BBC having done things like Funland and wondering what to do. Um, I phoned Naira up and said, what about me coming to Big Talk? So that happened, and we got some backing from uh, BBC Worldwide, who were our distribution uh, partners, and put some money in to pay me a bit of money and to sort out what was Big Talk then, because Nora was still in a flat, and Matthew Justice, who was an independent film producer, who Tessa Ross had suggested to Nora would be a good partner. The three of us met um, uh, and decided to form Big Talk 2.0, which we irritatingly call it. People still say 2.0. I don't know. I hope not. It's a really <laughs> stupid thing to do. Anyway, so we relaunched the company um, with a brief to do film and television, me leading on television, Naira leading on film, and Matthew keeping it all kind of ticking along. And so on the so. day I left the BBC to go to um, Big Talk 2.0, there was a, a BBC drinks, writer's drinks thing, talent drinks thing, so I went to, because um, it was free drink, uh, <laughs> and I was leaving, and I bumped into a chat called Stefan Goloczewski there, who I didn't really know, hadn't heard of, and got talking to him. I think he came up to me and said, hello, good tip. He came up and said, hello, and I went, hello, and we got chatting, and he went, I'm in this thing called The Cowards. Oh, you're in The Cowards, and I love The Cowards, um, who were a sketch group at the time with Tom Basden and Tim Key, um, 
And anyway, he sort of asked me about the royal family. He said, I know you produce the royal family. I'd love to, um, that's right up my street. I'd love to know more about it. So I said, great, well, um, email me and um, can I have a cup of tea? Because I'm starting a new production company and um, need talented people like you to help me not screw it up. Um, so he emailed me and sent me two scripts. One was called Young, Unemployed, Young, Unemployed and Lazy, and that became him and her. And the second one was called The Funeral, and that became Mum, which launches in two weeks' time. Right. Him and her was the first thing. So Stefan sent it to me. I read it. Actually, Stefan sent it to me. I gave it to somebody who read it and said, this is rubbish. Oh, dear. And instead of going, oh, OK, I sort of thought, actually, I don't really believe that opinion, or is that true? And also, I've met him, so I better read it, because he's going to come for a cup of tea. So I read it and went, this is brilliant, actually. It's not rubbish at all. And it turned into this. I consider Rev to be one of the great comedies of this century. I think it's perfect. And whether it ever does come back, I know the intention was that it sort of built to this incredible climax. I don't know if you followed it right the way through, but it was this Easter mm. uh, sort of vision at the end was incredible. Um, so even if it doesn't ever come back, it's a perfect a perfect thing. Never say I never, though. Television. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously, cold feet should never have come back, and it is coming back, so it can be done, and it can work. <laughs> it should never have come back. <laughs> well, this is what, this is what that's my knee-jerk your... reaction is. Okay, yeah, yes. my knee-jerk reaction well, is always, don't bring it You might be right. You I know it. I, know. I, know. I don't that want to bring where Twin we're headed. X-Files, Twin Peaks. That shouldn't uh, have come back. That yeah, was shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm absolutely confident that cold feet won't be shit, because, A, everybody's in it, and you know, yeah. it's in a safe hands. Also, it's not a... It's not a reboot. It's, uh, it's somebody's asked me the other day. Um, Poldark is obviously a remake yes. of a classic 70s yes. series. Cold Feet is just series six. Yeah. It just happens there was 14 years between series five and series six. It's yeah. the same writer, Mike Bullen. Yeah. It's the same five actors, apart from Helen Baxendale, who's dead. The character, not Helen Baxendale. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's just series six, 14 yeah. years on. Anyway. I can't wait. Um, yeah, but, but you know, we've, we've done kind of comedy drama and how difficult it is. But, yeah. you know, there is a, you know, it's about, again, empowering the writer. The thing that uh, is now happening more and more in America where it's always supposed to be writers' rooms and teams of people, but the idea of one writer is now, because they're doing shorter series, yeah, yeah. especially yeah. Of, dr of dramas, really, I'm thinking of in America, one writer writing them all is now quite common. Yeah. But here, it's, all comedy has always been that way. Yeah. You know, the same writer wrote every episode of Last of the Summer Wine, which went on for Roy, decades, yeah. Roy Clark. Um, so but that is a, the, the rev, so that some of it is to do with luck, is that the first two things that we developed at Big Talk, Stefan was literally a luck meeting and being open to somebody coming up to you and saying, hello, so say hello, give you life lessons, I guess, of, of how it works, there's no magic. And then Rev was, we'd made a series of, when I was at the BBC called Freezing, which was made for a tiny amount of money. I think it was three episodes for BBC Four, um, written by James Wood, who I was introduced to by Simon Curtis, who's a colleague of ours. And um, it was about a couple, which was played by Hugh Bonneville and Elizabeth McGovern. Wonder what happened to them. Um, <laughs> Um, and their friend, Tom Hollander, who's based on a very famous, um, his character's based on a very famous um, agent. Um, so that, that tiny little show, those three half hours, was made for nothing. When I was at, at um, Big Talk, I just phoned up Tom and said, what are you doing? So I had this idea about um, faith and religion, and I was walking through Hyde Park, and there was a Muslim family having a picnic, and there was... The vicar was walking through Hyde Park to go and do his service. It was a Sunday, and, and then there was a Jewish family. So just thinking about the about faith in London, and that led to Rev, really. But that was another relationship based on something tiny. That you just got to stay in touch with people and keep talking to them and keep the relationships going because it's all, you know, there is there are no secrets. It's all about relationships and people and being open to ideas and and um, and listening to what people want to do and then helping them. And that also feeds back into, you know, what, as you go in uh, at the bottom, be nice to everybody is something I've done. I don't, I don't know whether someone ever told me that, but I just do it anyway because I'm really nice. Yeah. But be nice to everyone because you never know when you're going to meet them again yeah. or whether there might be an opportunity opening up. Yeah. And the fact that you even had a coffee or a chat yeah. might just be your, your way of getting ahead of, of everyone else. There's so, a very funny story about a, um, a very powerful uh, now commissioning editor um, who was being reintroduced in a meeting, in a commissioning meeting, to um, 
um, the head of a very successful independent production company. And uh, I can't tell you their names, but they were introduced. And uh, head of independent production company went, um, hi, hi, I don't think we've met before. And the incredible file commissioning editor said, uh, we have met before, actually. Um, last time I saw you, you um, threw a croissant up my head and said, and said, I said a fucking hot croissant. That's cold. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, yeah. so that put him in his place. Yeah, well, yeah, it's best not to A, do that. Well, it's just that thing about <laughs> being nice, remember, you know, yeah, yeah. Being on the way up, yeah. you'd be nice for everybody, because on the way back down, yeah. you're going to want some help. Also, nice to meet you and nice to see you. Very careful Very, distinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if in doubt, say nice to see you, yeah. even if you've never met them before, just in case you have met them before. Yeah. Horribly I've rude. I've sworn twice now, I'm really sorry. It's okay, it'll be edited out. Okay. So you get the exclusive, two yeah. bucks. No one else gets that. Three now. Three? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so another exclusive. This is, this is again, um, just being open to, to talented people. Daniel Lawrence Taylor, who's a really brilliant up-and-coming comedy actor. You'll know him when you see him. He's the one with the glasses in the, in the promo. Was in a show with us called Cockroaches, written by Freddie Seibel, which only made one series, sadly, but hey. But out of that came our relationship with Daniel. Daniel had written this script on spec, which he gave to Josh Cole, who's a producer that works with um, us. And we read it and went, this is quite good. And we developed it over the course of about a year. And then we shot it six weeks ago. And uh, we just delivered it to ITV2. That will be seen on ITV2. I don't know. It's gone. It's a pilot, so yeah, often so we don't... It um, may or may not be shown. don't often like to wash your dirty linen in public. Mm. Um, I think it will be shown because... I don't know, actually. It might not be. You might hold it back and wait till we made the series and then release it all. But so that's, that I'm is very proud of it. And, and, and um, for lots of reasons that are obvious on screen, it's just a great thing that we're doing. Well, um, you know, we're, we're about to hand over to the uh, eager audience. And um, don't forget to wait for the microphone so that everybody can hear. We've kind of, it's kind of come up anyway, naturally, organically, while we've been talking. Has it? Is I'm so one, sorry. Is, is, there, is there one piece of advice joke. that you would, uh, you would give to the room? I think if passion and enthusiasm and, and, and um, honesty and, and uh, genuine, being genu genuinely knowing what it is that you want to do, which is really hard, but being passionate and genuine and honest about it and engaged with the thing that you want to do is the thing that I think I'd recommend. Saying what you think they want to hear so you get the job never works. Uh, genuinely engaging with something and being smart and open and passionate about it when you're in the when you talk to people about it. That was a terrible bit of advice. Did that mean? Yeah, that's all right. I don't I know. Go with I that. Think just get your foot through the door, and once it's through the door, don't you know? Let them take it out. I think. Mm. So get into it. Get into somewhere, and then anywhere that's that's vaguely in the in, in the zone, and then work your way from that position. Don't worry too much that you've been offered a job in factual but you want to work in drama, just go and get in there because you'll meet people and start to understand how the business works. Yeah, I, d I did a, a talk with um, some students and one of them was too embarrassed to say it during the uh, Q&A, so came up to me afterwards. Uh, the best questions always happen that way. And she said, I'm really terrified that I'm on the wrong course. And I said, you can't be on the wrong course yeah. because even by being on something that you feel is the wrong course, you'll find something out by doing it and then you'll yeah. go in a different direction. So. That's my bit of advice, even though you didn't ask for it. Um, but but so, thank you. Mm -hmm. But thank you. Yes, you might, you might use that at some point. Um, so what happened to her? She's, on the, she's now a dentist or something. Well, who knows? It'd be interesting, <laughs> wouldn't it? When I, uh, serious thing. When I was at the NME as a features editor, uh, someone rang me up, and they put the call through to me. And I don't know why they did, but they did. And they said, it's, uh, it's Tanya in Sheffield. And I, I thought, I don't know anyone called Tanya. I don't even know anyone in Sheffield. And she said, hi, I'm Tanya. I'm 16 years old and I would like to write the next Manic Street Preachers cover story. And they were a reasonably new band at the time, and we had put them on the cover. And I said, I sort of laughed and said, yeah, that's, I'm really glad you do, but obviously I'll have a team of about you know, 12 writers here, all of whom want to write it, so it'll be one of those. But thanks for calling. And she said, yes, but you know, they're all journalists. You should get a fan to write it. And I, I didn't let her. I didn't say, yes, that's a brilliant idea. You should do awesome. it. I, I should have done, obviously. But we stayed in touch. I went up to Sheffield a year later, and we met and had a chat. And she ended up going to Melody Maker, ironically, who were obviously more open-minded than I was. And she now is, she certainly was, at The Guardian, their China correspondent. 
she went out yeah. to China and wrote all of their stories about China. Wow. I mean, she is, she's done all of that, and I remember her from 16. And if only, if only I'd empowered her. I thought you were saying she's now my wife. No. <laughs> no. Wrong country. Okay. Yeah, too, too far. I'm not going to live in China. Um, okay, so hands up then. Let's see, uh, see what we've got. Hi, thank you both for coming out on a Sunday. Appreciate it. Um, I was just wondering with the closure of um, BBC Three and it going kind of digital online, how much of your slate are you thinking about doing digital and how much of that is uh, the way everything seems to be slanting for you guys? Um, I don't think we think... So this is what I think. I think it's the programme, not the platform, ultimately. So I don't really give a monkey's, whether it's digital or what it is, it's just programming. I don't think people think Netflix has gone digital. It's just the platform, so I don't care. Um, I think that the amount of money that the BBC is spending on programming for younger audiences is a worry, and hopefully the demise of BBC Three as a terrestrial channel won't affect that, but there are some obviously big issues at the BBC. But fundamentally, I think it's just the programmes. You know, if you build it, they will come, as, the, as the, the, the quote goes. And I think it's just if the show's good enough, the audience will find it. So uh, we don't think like that. In fact, I'll tell you what we think at the moment is, say something gets cancelled, I don't know, one of the shows we've made, we're thinking about crowdfunding them going forward, because we don't really care if Sky don't want to make Project X, we'll see whether the audience wants us to make it. And that's what I think that's exciting about digital, is there's a, if, you've got, if you've been on television and there's an audience there, and the broadcaster, for whatever reason, decided they don't want to do it, or well, maybe we can crowdfund it in some fun, exciting way that's more collaborative with the, with the fan base. That feels like the digital future. So that is all good news, really. It's all good news. Yes, it's all good news. The on bad a news is I was actually with um, was that some BBC roundtable thing of the day, and what's what's alarming for lots of independent production companies, which is good news for you, is that there is a drop off in the number of people applying to indies. Uh, as hard as you may find that to believe, it's true. And there's a lot of I think because of the digital revolution, so. There's a lot of people going to Vice, wanting to get work for Vice or wanting to work for Maker Studios or want to work for Refinery 42, or it's called, what's it called? 29. 29, thank you. <laughs> You're their target customer, I can see. <laughs> um, so indies are actually finding that they're not getting, uh, and particularly independent production companies that have a large requirement on people. So the bigger, you know, factual and entertainment producers, there's a, there's a definite drop-off um, as other more interesting things in your minds uh, come up. So I wouldn't, uh, that's a real thing for the traditional independent production company model at the moment. Um, thank you for that, it was really interesting. Um, I was wondering, how involved are you in the casting process itself and do you enjoy that part? Yeah, uh, the casting process, um, this is how involved I am. Choose the casting director. Um, some that we work with that we like a lot, often, or there's maybe some new people we want to give a go to, but choose a casting director um, and then agree the list of actors that are going to come in to read for the part, if they are going to read. Often these days, uh, bigger actors will only take offers. Um, but if, it's, if you're going to meet actors, actresses, then I would appoint the casting director, meet with the director and the casting director, agree the list of actors that will come in, um, I won't be in the auditions, um, the director and producer will be in the auditions, um, but then I will watch what they say are the kind of best five or six from, the, from whatever has been shot for that part. Um, and then with the director and producer and then broadcaster make the decision on the casting process. Hi guys, um, what was your greatest setback, whether it was in production or in life, and how did you overcome it? Now, you can say, fuck off, you cheeky Welsh bastard. I'm not going to answer that. Um, I wouldn't say that. It's not a cheeky question. I think um, in life, <laughs> um, my greatest setback was being sacked, actually. I got sacked um, at an early age, about 23, without work for about six months. Thought that was it. Who sacked you? Which? I'm not going to go into it. Oh, okay. It. <laughs> how, how did you overcome that? When did you just think, right? I'm just going to focus. Alcohol helped quite a lot. Anyway. Alcohol. <laughs> um, I it, you know, actually, what how I overcame it was by picking myself up, up off the floor and then go talking to everybody I could possibly find who might help me. And at, at what at some stage, the chuckle Andy Harris, who we mentioned earlier on, went, oh come on then, you can't be that rubbish. And um, come and do this. So well, that's why I went to Manchester and um, worked um, 
in the entertainment department there on a quiz show called Lucky Numbers, which is where I met Shane Ritchie. And you got lucky, mate? <laughs> yeah, well, I think luck, yeah, definitely. You need a bit of luck. It's, you know, what is it, 5% hard work and 95% luck is the, is the phrase. But you make your own luck. Th th yeah, thank you very much, Kent, and thanks, Andrew. Thank you. There's, well, there's two up on the, on the aisle here, so we can go to one after the other. You just said that uh, you've been giving a lot of um, uh, opportunities to newcomers, and they've got new ideas, and uh, also you were um, getting into one side of the industry and then sidestepping into TV. But I'm an editor, and I've noticed a lot of uh, time that now on TV, producers want to hire people who have done the same thing, yeah. and they're not yeah. really giving opportunities to yeah. other people. What sort of things do you edit? Uh, I edit uh, feature films and promos. Okay, and what do you want to do? I want to do more TV, TV comedies and dramas. Right. But mm. I, I'm not... But you haven't got any comedy on your CV. I do, but not on TV. Right. So, because I don't have any um, broadcasting yeah. Um, credits, yeah. they don't... Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's, a, it's a common project. Um, common project, common problem. Uh, the sort of people you're describing are known as CV whores who just look at the list of credits that has gone before them and don't really talk to the person. So I think you've got to try and... Have you got an agent? Mm, that's what they said as well, because I didn't have it. I didn't have yeah, well, no, but it's, broadcast but, credits, so they, they thought I couldn't... They couldn't well, I would try and get an agent that can help you get you in front of, of um, directors. Um, I would volunteer your services. There's always low-budget things being made everywhere, and people need people to do some comedy for not very much money, so you can do some stuff at, for your own good outside of your being paid to work, just so you can get those credits on your, on your reel. Um, I think agents are really, really helpful in that. If you're talented, an agent will spot it and help you introduce you to directors. There's always people who want talented people to help them do things, so looking for where those, those uh, those other productions are that need editors. There's hundreds of short films being made that all need editors. Um, so I'd be looking to volunteer services. Is that very? Is it Shooting People? That very good um, short film website. I think it's called Shooting People. If you go on there, there'll be people going. Does anybody know any editors? I've got a comedy film, um, a comedy half hour, which is like good for short films. It needs an editor. I go me. I could do it, and then you'll have something to show me or your agent or whoever else that you can cut comedy. And two rows back. Hello. Hi, I'm Jess. I was just wondering, um, I know BBC have started doing a lot of like diverse yes. dramas. Do you think there's like a huge market for it after like Empire? Do you think that's the new thing to go into? I think it's a really interesting question. I Did think... you have any hesitations as well about going no, for like black? No, no, I don't think any hesitations in giving talented writers from wherever <coughs> they come from the opportunity to write what they want to write about. I think that in this country, unlike in North America, yeah. the, the economic power of the BAME audience is not as great as it is in the United States. And in, um, in the United States, the model has changed since the spending power of the uh, Afri African-American and Latin American audiences has got bigger and bigger and bigger, um, and has affected how people program networks, commercial networks, that set advertising because they've realized that the Latin American um, community is the fastest growing in North America, and now the, the, the value of the black dollar, as it's called, is huge. So that's why having you know, diverse casts makes commercial sense. Here, it's still not quite as it should be, so there are all these other initi initiatives going on to give um, more opportunity to more diverse um, writers and directors and actors. Um, it's sort of societal, I think, because I think ultimately your show should reflect the audiences that are watching them. And as our society becomes more and more diverse, then surely our programs should become more and more diverse. Um, but there is a great lack of, um, of writers. Most okay. writers are like him. All right, so. Lo lovely people, but are white, middle-ish class men. Uh, so we don't, have, we don't have enough Michaela Cole. Um, Cole. We wrote chewing, chewing gum, yeah. yeah. Uh, or Daniel Lawrence Taylor's. You know, there's not enough um, diversity in writing. So if you think you've got a writing itch and you and you come from a from a um, 
a, a Bain background, then scratch that itch because there's a huge, 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 huge lack of, of writers, and that's where the that's where it comes from. It's those stories that need to be told. I don't have that experience. I can spot the script potential, but it's those stories and that perspective that is lacking. I think. And the best way to get into contact with somebody like you is just answer for your email address or something like yeah, that? Yeah, no, I could give you my email address, but I, <laughs> I, but I, and I would give it to you afterwards, okay. um, but not to everybody, because then it'll just make my life even more complicated. <laughs> um, the truth of it is, is that if you are a writer, and I think there are 70 or 80 uh, literary agents in the, in the UK that specialise in uh, screenwriting, so there's an awful lot of people out there looking for, for new young talent. So if you haven't got an agent who is, whose job is to sort of do a filtering process, you've got to ask yourself why, really. So that's why lots of companies say we don't take submissions from, you know, from, from members of the public. There is a, there's an ecology here, which is 78 agencies, so whatever that is, 500 agents, scouring theatres, fringe theatres, uh, submissions that come in, cold submissions, you know, all the colleges, all the schools, all the screenwriting courses, everything. All these people make money out of very talented writers and they're motivated to find them. So if you haven't got an agent, uh, it's not because I don't want to, it's just like uh, it might be too early for you to be approaching a producer. Okay. There's another ecology there, which is, the, which is the world of agents who are forces for good. A good agent will give you fantastic advice, read your material at an early, an early stage, give you brilliant feedback, and help you, you know, help your career. They're not just there to take 10, 50% of your hard-earned money. They're there to build you and, and grow you as a, as a writer. And they only get to take that percentage when they've yeah, got you some Yeah, so they work, put in so. a lot of time for no money whatsoever. So don't, please don't demonize the, the cliche of, the, of the, the avaricious agents and nonsense. They are incredibly powerful. Um, powerful in a good way, force for good and for, for great creativity. Thank well, you. It's quarter past, so we have to end because it's a strict program and lots of other stuff to be done. Um, so, uh, well, thank you all for being yeah, out here. You. Uh, you know, you're the good people, but a big round of applause for Kate now. That was comedy producer extraordinaire Kenton Allen. For more insight into comedy writing and how they do it over the pond, listen to the Comedy Writing Masterclass with Greg Daniels, the man behind the US office and Parks and Recreation, who started his career as a writer on The Simpsons. That's all at bafta.org forward slash guru.